Welcome back to another episode of Better Than I Found It, the podcast all things college golf. You're listening to Mike McGraw, the men's golf coach at Baylor University. My guest today on Better Than I Found It is longtime Florida golf coach, Buddy Alexander. Buddy's not only a Hall of Fame golf coach, he was a great player as well, having won the 1986 U.S. Amateur Championship at Shoal Creek. Also played in the Walker Cup. Uh, He's the son of a former PGA Tour player who was a Ryder Cupper as well. And his son, Tyson, is currently playing the PGA Tour. Buddy won 72 tournaments as a coach in in NCAA golf, uh, including two national championships in 1993 and 2001, along with 10 SEC titles, two of them at LSU and eight at Florida. Buddy's a great old school coach, had a great personality, was a really smart guy, very, very competitive, and it's a great interview too. I really enjoyed having Buddy on the podcast today. I hope you enjoy the same. All right, better than I found it. Listeners, uh, let's give a big welcome to Buddy Alexander, the longtime coach at the University of Florida, among other places. Buddy, thanks so much for taking the time out to, you know, just join me today on Better Than I Found It. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, um, first of all, the first thing I want to do is you've been out of coaching for about eight years now, I think. And I know you're sort of back in coaching now. So catch us up on where you are, what you're doing, because some of the listeners obviously won't know. Well, we stayed in uh, Gainesville a couple of years after retirement, and um, my wife's a little younger. She wanted to keep working. I was doing um, some mentoring of juniors, uh, which I could do anywhere, and she really wasn't happy with her job, so my both my children were both living in the Gainesville area at the time, but I said, uh, you know, hey, we don't have to stay here. And uh, she was the first female sports information director in the ACC at NC State. She also was the first female media official on the PGA Tour. Uh, she's always loved athletics, um, likes being a part of a team, and uh, Nick Klein had at Auburn was kind enough to offer the job as director of uh, operations for men and women's golf. So away we went to Auburn and um, I was just enjoying playing golf. It's a great little golf town. Got some really nice golf courses here. A lot of good players to play with. Um, But this community has been so good to us. You know, at some point I felt like, you know, it's time maybe to give something back. And um, Nick had a spot as a volunteer assistant. So I'm the volunteer assistant coach for Auburn University, which uh, basically means when he goes out of town with the first team, I'm at home working with the other guys. And wow, uh, that's, that, that's got to be a special deal for those kids. I mean, do they know uh, they know your history? I'm sure they know some of it, right? They know. Um, yeah, I would think so. It uh, doesn't mean they don't argue with me. It doesn't mean <laughs> they don't challenge me, uh, but um no it's been great um you know obviously uh Nick's got everybody back from last year I knew all the kids there's one freshman that I didn't know and and he's probably the hardest worker on the team just a a delightful kid uh Reed Lauder and um but I knew the kids I knew the coaches Chris Williams the assistant coach has become a very very good friend uh, always loved Nick. So the timing was right for us to, or for me in particular, to give back to the Auburn community a little bit. I'm happy to do it. And, uh, and I've really enjoyed it. Well, I, I wanted to ask about that because at some point I'm not going to be coaching either. Right. And I might need to uh, put a plug in right now. So I've got a volunteer assistant position waiting for me because <laughs> there's something in our blood when you, when you love coaching, I mean, I once had a coach tell me, don't get into coaching if you don't, if you can't live without it. It's, it's something that's burning inside you. And so if you didn't love coaching, I don't think you'd jump back in as a volunteer assistant. So this has got to be feeding some good fuel for you. Yeah, I mean, I think that you get into coaching because, you know, for me at least, uh, you know, I love to compete. Uh, I love young people and I love golf. And uh, that that was the avenue. My my dad, uh, you know, was a tour professional who made a couple Ryder Cup teams. But then, you know, in my lifetime, he was a club pro. And um, 
this just looked like uh, it would satisfy more of my desires um, to, to stay in golf, uh, but to remain competitive, work with, with good players, young players. Um, and uh, I don't think, I, you know, obviously there's some things about coaching as you grow older that are not as much fun. Yes. Um, you know, I don't have to identify those for you. You know what you know what you like, you know what you don't like. I mean, people ask me uh in recent years, what do you do you miss coaching? I said, Well, uh two weeks of the year, the SEC and the NCAA tournament. Uh nobody misses the regionals, you know, because that <laughs> that's a no that's a no-win situation. You know, even if you win, you just all you do is get to go to the next the next step. But um you know, there, there's more to coaching than I like than the SEC and the NCAA tournament. But those were my two favorite things. And um, those are when I really missed it. Um, but uh, I, like I said, I've enjoyed what I've been able to do with these guys this fall. Uh, and really looking forward to the spring. Well, you guys have a great team there. I think you've been ranked number one at some point during the fall. So uh, good job there. Keep keep up the good work. And maybe maybe I'll see you someplace in the spring, someplace. You probably see me out in uh, Arizona at some point. That would be wonderful. I'd love to see you there. Well, so uh, thanks for catching us up. I think that that's great that you're back in coaching, and, and I know you're doing a great job with that. But um, let's go back to somebody who I know had an influence on your life. You know, your dad played professional golf before you were born and then was a club pro while you were growing up. So you didn't get to see the the professional golf side of it, if you will. Uh, but he was an amazing player. I think a lot of people don't really know that. I mean, he was a top 10 money list guy when, unfortunately, a, a very, very tragic day when there was a plane crash and he was involved. And uh, he was a great player. No, I think he was. Um, you know, he was, I think he was eighth leading money winner in 1948. In 1949, he was 17th money winner. He got married that year. He blames my mom for that year. Um, but in 50, he was, I think he was about third leading money winner going into September, um, when, uh, airplane accident occurred, he was the only survivor. Essentially he spent the next seven months in the hospital and it, uh, pretty much ended his career. His hands were badly burned and, you know, he had to have some knuckles on, on both hands, uh, frozen in place. He had them frozen like this so that he could continue to to grip a club um and his anchor ankle was shattered that was the biggest problem um he couldn't he couldn't walk 18 holes without being in a lot of pain during the round and then the next day i remember watching him come home from us open qualifiers where he'd walk 36 holes and literally he couldn't get out of bed for a couple of days but um but he did play in the 51 Ryder cup matches uh late in the year uh, he earned enough points in 50 alone, um, basically, to make that team. And um, they put him against the guy that had won the Order of Merit for the Great Britain team and kind of as a sacrificial lamb. But it was at Pinehurst number two. My dad was from North Carolina. He went to Duke. He had won the North-South. And, um, you know, as he used to say, his hands were bleeding badly. He was out of dry towels. So I had to just dust him off right there on number 11 and, and he won <laughs> eight and seven. Um, it was a 36 hole match. So he was, I think he was, about, I think he was wearing out. I mean, I've seen the the hole by hole scores. Um, you know, I, I think he had a couple holes with a bogey, uh, but he, but he barred number 11 uh, to win eight and seven. And, you know, that was kind of the high point of his career, uh, at least uh, moving forward. You know, I think a lot of people, I don't ever hear that story. I don't ever hear it retold. So thank you for telling us today. But at the time, it was the largest margin of victory in the Ryder Cup, which had been going on maybe 10 or 12 different Ryder Cups. And it came less than a year after a plane crash that almost ended his life. And obviously, it did end his career eventually. But that's an amazing story to have done that. What a comeback. Yeah, it was a it's a pretty amazing story. Um it was the largest margin of victory at the time. Again, the singles matches were 36 holes. All the matches were 36 holes, um, even the, the foursomes and the, uh, four balls and what have you. But, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a pretty special day for him, no doubt. That's great. And he lived, I think, until age 79, something Correct. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, club pro a lot of time. What was it like being a 
son of a club pro. I was a son of a club pro. My dad was a club professional for 40 years. So it's kind of a different life. It's, it's fun. I wouldn't trade it, but what was it like for you? Well, we lived on the eighth tee. So by the time I was, uh, you know, I don't know, seven or eight years old, I could ride my bicycle down to the golf course and just hang out all day. Um, you couldn't misbehave because you were the you were the pro's son. Um, there were some certainly some positives in that, you know, like when I went to go play golf, I got in his shag bag and used the balls that he would played a couple rounds with as balls. <laughs> you know, I think a lot of my peers were jealous that I got to play with better balls than they did. You know, it wasn't like junior golfers were always getting new balls back in the day, but um you know, I learned how to bag tees pretty early in my life. I learned how to grade balls that were fished out of the lake. Uh, he sold those used balls. Um, and uh, I had some duties around there. I cleaned a lot of clubs. Um, you know, I can remember getting on my bike at, uh, after hours and riding down to the bag room and letting a guy in to get his clubs who was leaving the next day to go out of town and, uh, you know, forgot to get his clubs. And, um, I mean, you know what it's like. You did the same things. It was it was, um, you know, like I said, you 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 had some jobs that you weren't paid for, but you had some privileges that were pretty sweet as well. Well, you, it sounded like you were describing my childhood because yeah. it was the same in those days. But another thing you didn't mention, not only was the boss your dad, but when you got home, your dad had been the boss. So it's like you had you had to treat that job well and you had to do a good job or you heard about it when you got home and that was no fun either yeah well i think my mom was the boss at home so uh <laughs> i caught it both ways e either way but um you know it was a it was a charmed life i mean i remember when i was 16 and you were able to go get another job and i i told him i go like you know i'm gonna get a job down here as a bus boy at the uh oyster bar so that i can actually make some money and he goes like oh well have at it good luck have a good time and you know I bust tables for about a month and then they go like, Hey, uh, we need you to shuck oysters. Well, that wasn't nearly as much fun. And, you know, you're working on those oysters, hoping you don't cut your hand wide open. And it wasn't, uh, it wasn't too much longer before I was bagging tees and grading balls and cleaning clubs again. <laughs> well, good life. I remember it. Uh, I don't think as many kids experience it today with sort of corporate golf, having taken over clubs and different things. It's, it's not quite the same as it once was, but thanks for the story about your dad. Skip Alexander was a, a, a actual legend. He was a great, uh, great story. So, uh, so you end up playing golf at Southern or Georgia Southern. Um, how was the recruiting process? I assume it didn't look anything like it does today. No, it was, it was nothing like that. I did have, uh, you know, I made visits to Georgia. Coach Copas was at Georgia at the time. I made visits to Florida. Um, but there was just something about, I guess, I guess I wanted to be a big fish in a small pond. Georgia Southern was only 6,000 students. It was, uh, they had a great little golf course to play all the time. Um, had, had good practice facilities. I was a ball beater. We had this field where we could go and you could drive your car out there and plug in your eight track tape player and listen to music, take your shirt off and hit balls. Just, uh, the coach was a young guy, Ron Roberts, and that appealed to me. Um, Jimmy Ellis had been a first-team All-American right before I got there, and I thought, well, you know what? If he can do it, then I can too. And, um, you know, I, I have had an opportunity to go to Florida State as well, but it just it just fit where I was at that time in my life, and I wouldn't trade it for the world. We went to the finals of the NCAA tournament 11 years in a row, um, and I was there for – a couple of those as a player and a couple of those as a coach. But um, it was it was the probably the first of the small schools that were were able to be competitive with the Floridas and the Wakes and the Oklahoma States and what have you. Not that we were as competitive as them, but we were we were going to the national tournament. In fact, in 74, Wake Forest won every tournament that they played in except for one. And we were the only team that beat them that year. Um, I, wow, I didn't know that. And in 75, um, they won every tournament that they played in except for two. We beat them again that year at Pinehurst, and uh, Florida beat them at, in the Chris Schenkel. That, those are the only two tournaments they lost. And what's interesting about that for listeners who are not historians, I mean, 
they are largely considered those two years for Wake Forest are considered two of the top five or six teams in the history of college golf, period. And oh, you guys were able to beat them. Hmm. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any doubt. I mean, how many teams go undefeated uh, today? None. I mean, I know it's different. Um, the 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 competitive pool was a little smaller, but um, yeah, they were. I mean, obviously, Curtis Strange, um, Jay Haas, Bob Byman, all were tour winners. Uh, David Thor played the tour forever. And, you know, every year they just plugged in somebody else at the number five spot that was pretty darn good as well. So they were uh, they were pretty special. Yeah, Jesse had it going had it going on then. So you you coached three years at your alma mater, which has got to be a special experience. You ended up getting the job at LSU in 1983 and coached there four or five years and then took over at Florida in 87. Is that correct? Uh, 88, actually. The, 88. I started in February of 88. I had okay. uh, briefly gone to work with IMG. I was a Florida boy living in Cleveland, Ohio in the wintertime. It got a little chilly for me. And uh, <laughs> I probably would have not left that job had it not been Florida where I grew up. And so that was a chance to get a little closer to home. And I thought to myself at that time that my kids would probably never meet or know their grandparents if I stayed in Cleveland. So um, that opportunity was available and um, I was there for 27 years. So that that middle uh, coaching experience, which was at Louisiana State, LSU, you did something I don't think another coach has ever done. You won the U.S. Amateur Championship while coaching. And I remember seeing that cover of Golf Journal or Golf Week or Golf World, I'm sorry, at the time. But it said, way to go, coach, or something like that, or great job, coach, or something. And I thought to myself, who is this coach winning the U.S. Amateur? How did this happen? Uh, it was at Shoal Creek in Alabama. Uh, and by the way, have you been back to Shoal Creek since the tornado hit and took some trees out of there? I did. I just uh, just recently, I went up there this past summer, first time. Um, you know, Shoal Creek is a course that can uh, afford to lose a few trees. Uh, mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, for those that you talk to about it, the fourth, fifth, uh, and sixth hole look a little different. Other than that, not much change. Um, mostly the trees between four and six are basically gone. They've replanted a few of them. I wouldn't be surprised if they do some bunkering in there at some point. Um, uh, it doesn't look bad if you hadn't ever seen it before. Uh, but it is a little a little more open than it was before, but it's still a great golf course. Yeah, it was, what a golf course. But talk about that. I know you've talked about it in 100 interviews in your life, but, I mean, that was pretty special when you're the coach and you're recruiting and you're coaching and you've got a good team and you go win the USAM. Wow. Well, I played professionally between the Georgia Southern job and the LSU job, and, um, you know, back then they, they whammed me pretty good. They gave me a three-year – uh, sentencing. Um, it, they based it on the number of tour events and the amount of money you played. They didn't differentiate between tours. In other words, if it was a uh, PGA tour event or a mini tour event, it didn't matter to them. It was a tour event. So uh, most of my golf was played on the mini tours. But um, when I got there, I was, you know, I, I had been somewhat defeated by professional golf and I had no interest in playing golf. Um, <clears throat> the summer after I had my first year there, which would have been the summer of 83, uh, I played in the Louisiana Open and uh, basically was, you know, I was making about $25,000 a year and it was $5,000 for first. And I thought it was a closed open. You had to be a member. Of, you had to be a, a citizen of Louisiana. I thought, well, you know, I got a chance maybe to make a little money. I think I finished third, made a little money. But, um, you know, mostly it just kind of rekindled the uh, competitive urge to to play a little bit. So I applied for reinstatement and they gave me three years. So there wasn't much to play in or what you couldn't play in anything. So I didn't work on my game very often, but um, I knew I was going to get my amateur status back in the early summer of 86. And so I kind of secretly did a little practicing over Christmas break. And when the boys got back, I made a point to play in all the qualifying rounds to see how competitive I was. Um, and that team was very good. David Toms was a freshman. Uh, Emlyn Aubrey and Bob Friend both went on to play on the tour. 
Uh, Rob McNamara was uh, SEC player of the year in 87. So we had some good players. And um, I don't remember how, I don't remember if I was low qualifier or what, you know, obviously as a coach, you're exempt for every tournament. So I had a little less pressure on me than the other guys, <laughs> but uh, I, I played pretty well. And I, and you know, it led me to believe that I could be pretty competitive playing amateur golf again. And, uh, and then that summer I played in the Western amateur, uh, barely missed the sweet 16 kind of, kind of spit it out a little bit. And then um, I played in the, the Cotton States played pretty well up there. And then I qualified down in New Orleans for the amateur and I, I, I won the medal down there. So I felt pretty good going into Shoal Creek that I could be competitive. Well, you were competitive. You, you won the golf tournament. And I know that opened up some other things you probably hadn't been thinking about getting to play in the world and that year. Uh, and in the Walker Cup the following year, that had to have been a great experience because you didn't play in a Walker Cup as an amateur before. No. So this this was like a second amateur career and you got to play. That must have been a great experience. Yeah, that was terrific. Fred Ridley was my captain. Um, uh, we all know where he is today. Uh, it was at Sunningdale over in England. Terrific golf course. Um, had some great teammates, Billy Andre, uh, Billy Mayfair, Bob Lewis and Jay Siegel. Um, and we beat him. We beat him pretty good. It was, uh, it wasn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of guys that went on to play big time on the tour other than Billy and Billy. Um, Lenny Matisse was on that team. He played pretty well on tour for a long time, but, um, I don't know that we were necessarily a big favorite, but, um, but we beat him pretty well. Yes, you did. Um, uh, you had a great team, obviously. So your your competitive career has kind of rekindled itself, but you're still a coach. So it's like that was really, really important to you. And uh, you got the job at Florida a couple of years later. So you got it in 88 and you were there a long time. You coached at Florida for a long time and you were a I mean, every year you had one of the top 10, 15 teams every year in the in the country and you won a couple of national championships. So I, I, I want to talk about those because. Uh, I want younger coaches to hear because I, I don't know if you went into coaching thinking I'm going to win national championships or you just thought I'm going to get these kids as good as they can be. But winning a national championship is really, really hard. So uh, talk about 93. And then I want to talk about a walk on named John Pettit. I don't I want that story told publicly today, even though I've written about it one time. Go ahead. You 93. love that story. You, you love that story. No, no I do. doubt about it. Uh I think um, the first time we came close to winning a national title was 90. I had Dudley Hart, Chris DeMarco, Pat Bates, Jeff Barlow, Chris Tolson, four seniors. We were hosting at Ennisbrook. Uh, we led for 69 holes. Uh, Phil Mickelson shot 65 the last day of the tournament, um, and they kind of ran us down from behind. We lost by two. That was a tough one to swallow. Um and then, um, so we kind of had to rebuild after those four seniors left, but I had Brian Gay, uh, Chris Couch, and, um, you know, Brad Lehman, and Guy Hill, uh, you know, I, and uh, we had a we had a very solid team. I think we were ranked in, somewhere in the top five going into the tournament. Uh, it was in Kentucky at Champions Trace. Um I don't know that there was a prohibitive favorite. I think Clemson was really good. North Carolina was really good. Um, and the bottom line is we got to the 72nd hole um, and David Duvall and Chris Couch and um, a fellow from North Carolina by the name of McAfee was, was uh, on the 18th tee. And he hit it in the water and made a double. Uh, Duval made a bogey and Couch made a par and we won by a stroke. Um, I'll never forget. He was, uh, he was, Couch had about a three footer to win the tournament and he put his glove on to putt with and he never put on his glove to putt with. And if anybody ever preached anything about routine, it was me. And I'm going like, what is he doing? He's putting his glove on to putt this three footer. And he told me later that his hands were sweating so much. He didn't know if he could, <laughs> he could hold on to the club, so he put his glove on, a glove on, and he hold that putt. So that was the first one. Um, 
and then you know uh, 2001 the uh, only year that that my teams missed at the regionals was 2000 and we had four of the five guys back the one guy we added was Camila Villegas who who was uh <clears throat> needless to say a, an incredible player and as a freshman he was a first team all-american so he made a lot of difference Nick Gillum won his only college tournament at Duke um and uh, the difference between that one and the first one was that we won in a landslide. It, we, mm -hmm. it, it didn't look that way. We were actually 17 shots back after the first day, had a little coaching uh, conversation after the first round, had some weather delays. Uh, bottom line is we were seven back with nine holes to play in the third round, which we finished up the last day. We made up those seven shots on, on Arizona. And then the front nine, um, amazingly, we shot like uh, 16 under par or something crazy. And we had a 17-shot lead with nine holes to play. So that one, was, uh, that one was a little more fun. That was a little more enjoyable down the stretch, uh, as you can imagine. Everybody I ever hear that talks about that tournament, and we were there. We didn't play well. We missed the cut. But everybody that talks about that tournament says, just mentions, I mean, they ran away with it. It wasn't even close, and but it didn't start that way. And I think that's a perfect, I don't know, lesson for a coach or a player, either one, to learn. <laughs> you think how you start is is going to be the tournament, but it isn't always that way. You guys were, in fact, you were probably in jeopardy of missing the cut. Oh, like no we doubt, were. no, yeah. no doubt. I mean, <laughs> Nick Nick was the only guy that played well in the first round. I think he shot about 69, but the, you know, the other guys did not play well, but um, they, they rallied in a big way. And we, we actually shot low round of the day, all three of the, the last three rounds. So that's pretty unusual in a, in a competitive event like that. That's hard to do in the national championship for sure. Yeah. Okay. Before we leave sort of that kind of time frame of your career back, you know, mid, mid part of your career, let's talk about John Pettit. So, John Pettit was a, I guess, a quarterback in high school, a true walk-on. He had to go through your walk-on qualifying. I don't think he made it through the first time he tried. Tell me John Pettit's story because not that it's going to happen very often and not to encourage kids like, oh, my gosh, this will happen if you try it. It's such an unusual story and a great story. John Pettit from Florida, I believe. Well, John, John was a freshman in – uh 89 i think and he came out for the walk-on tournament did not make the team uh noticed every day you know we had our own university course it was right by campus noticed that he was out there working on his game every day got to be good friends with a lot of the guys on the team because he was out there playing all the time and um so he made the team in the fall of 89 for the 89-90 season um chris demarco was a senior uh, first team All-American. Dudley Hart was a first team All-American. Um, I think he played in one tournament that year, uh, but he worked very, very hard. Uh, the part of the story that you like was the the fact that he uh, he would play um, he would he would play Chris DeMarco every chance that he could for five dollars stroke play medal, just five dollars. I know that you know we're not allowed to gamble as college players, but. <laughs> it, it did happen. I'm sure it doesn't happen anymore, right? But no. anyway, um, he he played Chris for five dollars every day, and everybody on the team would make fun of him because you know, there was he couldn't he couldn't beat Chris. I, mean, I don't know I don't know how many times he beat him during the whole course of the year, but it wasn't very many. But um, at at one point, he he got upset with how much ridicule he was taking from the guys, and he said, "Listen, guys, you guys can make fun of me if you want to." But I'm playing the best player in college golf, and I'm getting a playing lesson from him every day for $5. And you guys go down and get a lesson from somebody, and you pay $100 an hour. I think I got the best end of the deal. And he was probably right. Um, he played in about half the tournaments uh, the next year. And then his senior year, he was the captain and played on a national championship team. Yeah, I, I don't think his story will be duplicated the way he did it and uh, but the lesson that's in there is so valuable. It's like everybody thinks a golf lesson is the only answer. And sometimes the lesson you take would be in how to play the game. And Chris DeMarco, by the way, not only was 
John not beating Chris. Nobody else in college golf was beating him very often. He was by far the best player. So I just think it's a great lesson for all of us to learn. And, and it reminds me of a quote uh, that I heard you say one time that I really like. And it said, because it, it involves instruction. I, I believe in instruction. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's great. We can all use people to help us with our game. But you said the key to taking instruction is to sift through what the instructor is telling you and figure out what applies to you personally. And most people think whatever the instructor says is all gold and it's all the only thing. I, I have to listen to everything they say. Sometimes if it doesn't apply to you, you need to figure that out on your own. Would you agree with that still? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, and I, I will always agree with that. I think that, um, you know, I think my point there was that not everything you get at every lesson is going to be effective for you. Um, I think that's ultimately why tour players change instructors uh, from time to time, because at some point what they're getting is not working. But I think the first lesson you take from anybody, you need to sift through it a little bit and go like, OK, I like that. I'm not so sure about this, but I like this and I'm going to incorporate that into what I'm, I'm going to do and I'm going to see how how it can help me get better. Um, I, I, I got a I got a good bit of information from David Ledbetter a long time ago, early in my coaching career at Florida. He said too much information is bad information. And I think that, you know, if you walk away from a lesson and the instructor's giving you four or five things to think about, there might there might not be but one or two that you need to focus on and you need to figure that out. Um, to, to walk away from a lesson and think that there's five things that you need to all of a sudden incorporate into your business might be a little a little too much to ask. So that's kind of where the genesis from that comment, uh, where that came from. Well, I really liked it. I actually used that quote in my book in the chapter about instruction because I think it's important. It shows a player that it's on you, really. You're going to the instructor for this advice and this help, and he's using his eyes as an expertise and all of that to help you, but it's still going to be on you. And I think that's the way your dad learned the game. It's the way my dad learned the game. And yeah, they asked for tips and they asked for help, but they honestly knew they had to do it themselves. And I think that's the part that's lost. Everybody's looking outside themselves for the answer. Yeah. Well, I know I'd say instructions changed a lot uh, with the, the advent of the, you know, the light scope and the track man and what have you. And, you know, now you're, you're able to maybe give a little more reliable proof as to what you need to work on. But, you know, certainly back in the day before those things came along, uh, it was it was mostly done by by your eyes. Uh, yeah, we had video. Yeah, you could slow it down. Yeah, you could see things pretty clearly. But at the same time, you still had to figure it out for yourself. Good. Well, thank you for that. All right. I'm going to ask a question. I've been wanting to do this for a while. I've never asked you about it. Playing Tiger in 1994 at Sawgrass. So it's the U.S. Amateur Tiger's first victory in that tournament. You played him that week. T talk about that match. Well, it was a, it was a, <laughs> it was a tough match for me. Uh, I was three up after twelve. I didn't play particularly well after that hole. Um, I can tell you that um, it's not the only time I've messed up in a in a pivotal situation. Um, I wasn't, you know, Tiger wasn't the Tiger that we know today. Uh, yes, he had won three U.S. Juniors in a row. But I mean, earlier that summer, I had qualified for uh, a, a U.S. Open. I was uh, 41 years old. I was only what five? I, well, I don't know. I guess I was eight years removed from winning the amateur. But I had played in all the amateurs uh, in between and had gotten pretty far a couple of other times. So I wasn't like I was afraid of Tiger Woods. Um, but I definitely ran out of guts golf and game at, uh, at the same time on that back nine. It was an <laughs> afternoon match. Um, he was he was a little younger than I was. Maybe that had something to do with it. I had a tough match earlier that morning. Um, and I just, I just ran out of gas. That's all there is to it. Uh, it was, it was unfortunate. He went on to win, you know, I, I'm fortunate in that, that I had, probably just as good a chance to beat him as did uh Keeney in the finals but his was in the finals you know I guess he was six up at in the after the morning and then came back and won 
Uh, mine was l much less publicized, so I probably have to answer a few questions than Trip does. But, um, you know, I think it was I, I will admit that that it was tough to take um, because that would have gotten me to the quarterfinals. Um, I would have played a guy named Tim Jackson, who nobody had really ever heard of at that time. Obviously, Tim was a heck of a player and went on to have an unbelievably great career. But um, it was it was disappointing because I had. You know, when you get when you get into the match play part of this thing and you're winning matches, you gain confidence along the way. And you you know, you get to the point where you think like, man, I'm going to I'm going to win this thing again. Um, but, um, you know, I did I just didn't perform down the stretch. And, you know, as as is in golf, if you don't if you don't ever want to fail, uh, then just quit playing because mm -hmm. we've all failed in, in, uh, in, in important moments. And it's, as long as you keep playing, it's going to happen again. Uh, fortunately for me, it's happened less often than the not, but, uh, but that one was tough to take still is. Thanks for bringing it up. You really You're welcome. <laughs> I knew you'd love hearing it. Well, the thing about it is I could interview a number of people who were ahead of Tiger Woods in those three U.S. juniors and those three U.S. amateurs that finished the match the same way you did. They did not win. Um, I contend of all of his records, and there are, like, it's silly how many crazy records that man created in the game of golf, stuff we never thought about. No doubt. But but that one's underrated. Three straight U.S. juniors, three straight U.S. amateurs, a six-year stretch. He won 36 straight matches. I don't think that could ever be duplicated again because you can't play 36 good rounds in a row to win every match. You can't do that. You are going to run into a buzzsaw at least a certain percentage of those times. you got to survive those. And then you've got to have the, the ability not to throw things away. I mean, it's not going to happen again. 36-0 is a phenomenal record. I'm with you. I don't ever see that happening again, like you say, uh, on so many levels. The buzzsaw, the one poor round, uh, you know, not not playing well at the right moment. I mean, as you mentioned, there's so many of those matches where, you know, he hold a pivotal putt on the 17th or the 18th hole or extra holes. Um, you know, one of my players, Steve Scott, had him <laughs> um, five down, I think, after the morning out at Pumpkin Ridge and uh, two years later. Um, Tiger stormed back and won that. And again, if if Steve Scott doesn't tell him to move his mark back on the 16th green, he loses that hole, and and now he's two down with uh, two to play instead of one down. Who knows? But um, yeah, I gotta I gotta go with you. That one's that one's probably not going to be du. Excuse me, not going to be duplicated. I don't think so. And by the way, for those listeners out there, Steve Scott wrote a book about that called Tiger. Hey, move your mark back or something like that that came out this past year. I actually read it. it's really good, um, and but it it did change sort of the course of history right there because, I mean, Steve I think was going to win that match and uh, he did the right thing. He did the thing we should do as golfers, and uh, Tiger ended up winning the match. But man, it's hard to believe you were the victim one year and two years later, one of your best players was a victim. Um, and by the way, another thing that. We've been talking about your former teams and different players. You've been talking about players that played the PGA Tour. Not every coach coaches this many PGA Tour players. It's, I think that should be noted. It's like you were on a heck of a run at literally every school you coached had guys that you sent to the PGA Tour. How many total did you send to the PGA Tour at, at any given time? Oh. You don't even know. know. It's over 40. Yeah. Yeah, that. That that part I think gets overlooked. It's like, I mean, you kept on recruiting really great players. You kept on developing those great players, and you kept on preparing them to try to go play a life of you know the life you hoped to do, which was play the PGA Tour. So they uh, obviously did a great job. You won seventy two times as a head coach, seventy two. Didn't know I, that. <laughs> I think I'm one away from fifty right now, so I don't think I'm going to catch you, buddy. But. I look at that, the Mike Holder, the Dave Williams, the Larry Pendleys. There have been some guys that have won in that range, Bruce Hepler but, and Chris Hack. But there's not that many, so you won a lot of them. You won eight SEC titles, which ten. anybody ten. knows. Ten? ten. Yeah, two, well, at LSU, 
the two at LSU get get, uh, get overlooked all the time. And, I apologize uh, that. Okay. It, well, no, it's not. It's not you. It's it's on you. You you looked at Wikipedia, right? So I did. Uh, I did. I forgot. Uh, you'd it's want a disappointing of to me for the LSU people because I know that they were very proud of those as well. So so ten uh, ten SECs, two national. Okay. Tech. So and oh, by the way. Yeah, I would have had a third one if the wind had kept blowing out there in uh, Oregon that one year um, when when your team won. Um, I want to tell you a funny story about that that you, you might. Well, not I was going to talk about that tournament. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I'm sure that you want to talk about it, but I have a really funny, a really cute story about that. So, you know, we played first off the back nine and we came around. We caught up with you guys who was last off the first nine. The wind's blowing like crazy and we're playing just out of our minds. And we're we passing everybody that we can pass. And we I think we actually got to the point where we caught you guys and we, we were tied and you guys had nine holes left to play. And and in all honesty, the wind did die down a little bit, you have to admit. But nonetheless, your team your team sacked up and played a great nine holes and you won by a couple of shots. But the funniest part, the, the my 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 memory about that tournament are one of the, the coolest moments was that you know our my team is you know we've been sitting around for you know two and a half hours and um you know had lunch and now we, we we're out on the 18th green we're watching you guys finish and um one of your players on the last hole um had about a six footer for a par and you know obviously let's be honest we were not hoping that, that he would make the putt um <laughs> you know, let's let's be honest about it you know we're hoping that we can somehow tie or or win and um this particular player looked over at Matt Every before he putted this 6 footer and he winked at him you want to guess who that was Trent Leon. Oh, yeah, no doubt about it. Absolutely. <laughs> and I thought to myself before he putted, I said, well, I don't know whether we're going to catch him or not, but he's not missing this six-footer for a par on the last hole. And he, of course, he drained. Might have been for a birdie. I don't even remember. But it was I a par. him looking over there. He and Every were big buddies, and he looked over at Every and winked at him before he putted. I thought, man, that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen in, in, in college golf. Well, Trent was I mean he was a great competitor. He was a freshman that year and had not even counted the first three rounds. And I tried to encourage him before the final round, but you know, because he he didn't have his game. It wasn't there that week. And um I basically said, Trent, okay, I know the last three rounds haven't been what you wanted, but today you can win this team a national championship. Today's your day. And he went out and shot three under par and he made that putt you were talking about on the last hole. And he did it in front of his friend Matt. I will tell you another story about Matt. So Pablo Martin, I'm walking with Pablo, and he's had the best year in college golf. He's just yeah. played beautifully. Yeah. And he was fine. He was just walking along. We were playing great. He was a couple under par. And we go through and we get up to 10 green and we look across. I guess there's a that water you can kind of look across and see number nine, where you guys were finishing. And Matt made about a 20 or 22 footer. And Pablo said, Oh my gosh. And then with the next hole, they had a scoreboard and they posted Matt's birdie and realized we're tied. Pablo was scared to death the last eight <laughs> holes. He couldn't even breathe. Oh, and I God. thought to myself, this kid's a pretty good player. A real he's, good player. He's led a European PGA Tour event at age 17. He's the youngest British boys champion ever. He's got it all. And he was scared to death. Matt Every's putt scared him for eight holes. He couldn't even function. Well, I think that's why you see some crazy things happen in the Ryder Cup team, because when you play for a group, you play for a team, you know, there's so much pressure not to let the others down that sometimes that can be a little more overwhelming than just trying to win a tournament individually. Yeah, well, you know, I know that you weren't the beneficiary of that day, and I was, but um, it it was still a great battle. And it was an unusual battle in the sense that you guys did finish on the other side. So you came back and played a great final round. I do remember the night before we ate at this little Italian place and you guys were eating there as well. And Trent Leon said something smart, Alec, to, uh, to Matt Every, I know. Sure. And um, I thought to myself, that comment, they're going to come back tomorrow. I just know they are. <laughs> and you guys did. You guys played great. That final yeah, round. we played good. It was, yeah, uh... you really did.
it was disappointing to lose, but you know what? You guys, you guys deserved it. You guys played that great, played that great back nine, no doubt yeah. about it. We we did have a good good tournament there. But okay, so before I leave this kind of set, I want to talk about Tyson because I think it's kind of cool that you're getting to watch your offspring play professional golf. But <clears throat> Sea Island 2014 was your last tournament with your full team together. <clears throat> you you were at a regional at Auburn maybe a couple of weeks later. Right. But I'm on the 18th green with Trey Mullinex. I'm the assistant coach at Alabama. And I look across, and those greens are kind of connected there, sort of. And you're standing there holding the flagstick on number nine. So your team's finishing on the opposite side, and you hadn't played well. But I look behind the green, and I recognize some faces. And they were guys that had played for you in years past. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Were those guys representative of all three schools you played? Was it just Florida? Was it a couple of schools? But I know those were former players that came to see you off. Uh, well, I know Jody Mudd and Mike Donald were there from Georgia Southern. Uh, there were a couple guys there from LSU, and there were several of the guys that played for me at Florida. So that, that was a special day. I did not not one of those guys called me before and said, "Hey, um, you know, I'm coming up to watch tomorrow." Uh, not not one of those guys that I know was going to be there. So that was that was a pretty special moment. You know, you're kind of a um, you're old school. I know that. Um, I like your style of coach. I wish I could be more like your style of coach, but you had a pretty hard shell. I mean, you're a funny guy and you had a great personality and you could talk really, really well, but you also had sort of a hard competitive shell. They broke that shell down that day. As I recall, you were pretty emotional overall, I think, as I recall. No, no, there's no doubt. It was, it was an emotional moment. My daughter was there and she started crying. That, that kind of broke me up to be real honest with you, but no, it's, you know, I think we're all, uh, emotionally built a little bit differently. Um, you know, I was definitely old school. I, I was definitely no nonsense. Although I think that my players would tell you that I coached with a lot of sense of humor. Um, you know, that was, that was one of the ways that I tried to get the point across to, to, to people was to, um, not make fun of them, but, you know, point out some of their errors. And I mean, you know, Coaching's a tricky business because you obviously want to boost their confidence. And that's probably the most important thing that you can do for them is to make them feel confident. But at the same time, you've got to be critical of their game and the mistakes that they make and try to help them become better players and learn from their mistakes. And I always felt that humor was one of the best ways to do that. So I, uh, I think to the, to the outsider, the, the shell might not have been as hard as uh, it was to the, to the insider. For sure. All right. So I'll say this to my, in front of my listeners, but congratulations on an amazing career. Uh, it's kind of cool that you're actually coaching again. So if Auburn wins something this year, you'll get a ring too now because you're a coach. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess so. I'm not doing it for the rings. Uh, you know, obviously I'd be uh, honored and flattered if something like that happened. I mean, you know, it's, it's so funny. Uh, so many of my friends here in Auburn have come up to me and go like, man, you must be a hell of a coach. I mean, look at this team now. They're ranked number one in the country. And, uh, you know, you've only been on staff for three months. And, I, and I'm going like, fellas, you know, you got to understand, I'm working with the guys that aren't playing in the tournament. So I'm not <laughs> doing, I'm not doing, I'm going to any tournaments. I haven't had anything to do with those guys that have been playing their, their tails off. And, uh, you know, I'm just trying to help anybody get a little bit better. But it's it's fun to get back in the swing of it a little bit. And, relearn some things and uh, yet just kind of stay within um, the, the scope of what uh, Nick and Chris are doing. And they, they, they're doing a great job um, and they do have, they've got, you know, Hey, let's be honest. Great players make geniuses of us coaches. Uh, it's not the other way around. Um, we can talk all we want about developing talent, but it's, it's, you know, nobody's ever been to the Kentucky Derby with a mule. And I've heard that recently from a lot of coaches. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I'm going to ask you that question in a minute about advice you've gotten from other. So here's a stat. I don't know how many families have had a grandfather, a son, and a grandson play in a U.S. Open. But that's got to be a pretty small group. I bet that's not a large group. But Skip, 
you and Tyson, your son Tyson, have all played in the U.S. Open. So uh, there's that, whether it's a small group or a larger group. I think it's pretty small. Talk to me about watching Tyson. You got to coach him, which is really special at Florida, and then you've watched his career unfold as a professional. Well, the answer to that question is three. Um, we were the second to do it behind the Tim Heron and his father and his grandfather, as far as the U.S. Open is concerned. Uh, since then, since since Tyson got into the Open, um, the Love family has done it. Davis and and his dad, and then Drew, their uh, his son, uh, became the third. No one has had a three generations play in the Masters. So I'm hoping that Tyson will get himself into the Masters one day and maybe we can be the first third generation to play in the Masters. But I'm very proud of Tyson. Uh, you know, he has persevered. He was a pretty decent college player. Nothing un unusually exceptional. He made a Palmer Cup team. He won a couple of uh, Zalia amateurs. But, um, you know, it's been a long 12-year journey. I, I kid him that, you know, he's a slow learner. <laughs> uh, but in, in reality, I'm proud of his perseverance. Um, and I, I'm proud of the fact that he's earned his way out onto the PGA tour, but, you know, he makes me proud every day. He's, he's a much bigger man than I am. And, you know, that makes me happy as a, as a father, uh, more so than as a coach. Well, and I remember speaking of that hard shell old school, I remember playing with you guys in tournaments when I was at Oklahoma state. And I could see there was a little beaming of pride there when your son was playing on the team. And I also remember something I don't think will happen again either. In 2008, we were paired together in all three rounds at regionals, Oklahoma State and Florida, and all four rounds at nationals. That, wow. That's pretty crazy. But for seven straight rounds in a row, we played with you guys. So. Wow, I didn't realize that. That, yep. is, that is unusual. I don't think that we... Is I don't think we did that well, did we? I mean, what, 2008? Where where, where was that? Was that the... That was at Purdue. You guys finished 11th. Oh, yeah. We finished fourth, so... Yeah, yeah. We didn't play well the last day. Yeah, well, that was... Tyson hit it in the elephant grass there on the 16th hole. It cost us a top 10. You know, we had bonuses for top 10s. I I cursed him all the way home. Not, not really. <laughs> you just didn't give him an allowance for a year. That's right. He wasn't the only one that hit it in the elephant grass up there, but yeah, that was... A, that was a, that By the was way... That golf course, yeah. I have nightmares. Yeah. Me oh, too. my gosh. Me that too. Golf. That was a tough one. That was a tough one. All right. Um, who's been the biggest influence on your coaching and why? Oh, that would be my dad. No no question. Not not that he coached, but, um, you know, he was, he was my dad. He was my hero. He was my mentor. He was my coach. Um, you know, I learned um, – so many things from him that I still use today as a player and, and that I pass along as a coach. Um, and he was hard. He was tough, but fair. And, um, you know, I, and you've alluded to it. I know that I'm a little old school. I'm older than <laughs> I'm old enough to be old school. Let's put it that way. But um, he was, uh, you know, he was tough. He was fair. And that was how I tried to be as a golf coach. Yeah, I would say that, too. You know, I worked for an old school coach, Mike Holder, obviously, for 16 years. But the one thing I always appreciated about both of you guys was at least everybody knew where you stood. <laughs> you know, I mean, you didn't hide that. So it's like, what value is there? I'd rather have that than a coach that was deceptive around me, whether I was the assistant coach or whether I was a player. I, I, want, the, I want to know where the coach stands. And you did a good job of that. I just wanted to win. I just wanted my kids to win. That's all. That's all there was to it. Yeah, they they knew that. All right. Best piece of advice you've ever received from another coach. So like a, a coach you were competing against or maybe you were looking up to or whatever. What's the best piece of advice? Well, when I got to Florida and um, the old uh, Buster Bishop, who won a couple national championships at Florida in 68 and 73, um, you know, he was very generous with his time and, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't meddle in my business. He didn't, you know, he didn't bother me, but every now and then he would give me some, some sage advice and, and, you know, his, his one little liner that I never forgot was he said, um, you know, buddy, your job is to take the best five players to the tournament. 
and how you do it is your damn business. And, you know, that was, that was a pretty good bit of advice in that, you know, it kind of, it kind of kept me moving in the right direction. You know, kids, kids sometimes think they get the short end of the stick from their coach, but the, the bottom line is coaches want to win and they want to do what's best for their team. And, you know, if every decision you make is for the good of the team, then you can look yourself in the mirror and know that, you know, that that kid that you left home for a tournament that thinks that he got a bad deal. The bottom line is you did it because you thought the best five players were going and and, and it was for the good of the team. So, um, you know, parents can get involved and. You know, you have uh, team dynamics that enter into the picture, but the bottom line is if you take your best five players to the tournament, then, you, you know, you can look in the mirror and know you're doing your best. Uh, that's incredible advice. Mike Holder always told me that, and uh, I think we broke that one time when he was coaching when I was his assistant coach, and it cost us dearly. It cost us the Big 12 championship when we knew we weren't taking our best team, but we took it anyway, and – I, I looking back on that, I can't believe that, that either one of us allowed it to happen. But and he would tell you today that's that's one less championship that we would have had if we'd yeah. have done it the right way. So, yeah. well, I mean, there you know there are extenuating circumstances. For instance, like you can sometimes have to leave a guy home for academic reasons, and right. you know you're not taking your best team. But by the time you get to the postseason, that shouldn't be an issue. You know, the academics should be should be pretty much taken care of, and. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you can look back on a situation where you know you you might have had the wrong five and uh, or six or however many you played in the in your conference, but um, and and it cost you and it, it you know inevitably it'll always kind of come back to bite you in the butt. Mm, really does. All right, last question I'm going to ask: Any regrets of anything in your coaching career? Anything you'd gosh, I wish I could do that over. And I'm not talking about just finishing second because somebody made a thirty footer on you or whatever. Just any regrets from buddy you know i think that anybody that goes through life and and says that they have no regrets um is probably lying i mean you know you, there there got to be a couple of things that you can look back on and and say that i could have done this a little differently i could have i could have managed a young man a little bit better um, there, there, there are a couple of guys that, that, you know, I, I probably could have done a little better job with, maybe I was too hard on them. Uh, maybe I was too easy on them. I don't know, but, um, I'm not going to say I don't have any regret, regrets, but I mean, there's, you know, the, the people that say they have no regrets, I think they're looking at the big picture and th say that things turned out pretty well for them. And I, I, I would have to say that things have turned out pretty well for me. I've had a blessed life. I've uh, been very fortunate. So from that standpoint, I don't have any regrets, but there certainly are a few things along the way. Nothing, nothing major, nothing, you know, unbelievable, but um, there are certainly some things that I could have done better and handled better um, that I, that I, if I knew now, <laughs> if I knew then what I know now, I might've done a little differently, but um, it, it's nothing earth shattering. Okay. Well, any any chance we're going to see you in some senior amateurs or anything going on anytime soon? Well, I played in the, every senior amateur uh, since I've lived up here. I think um, so. I played. I played this year. I didn't play very well. I didn't make match play. Um, I knew. I I knew it was uh, kind of a wishful thinking because I just haven't been able to practice this year. I didn't, I didn't have a great year in golf uh, with the surgery that I just had and <laughs> being unable to practice much, but, um, but yeah, I've, I've, I'll be at next year's uh, senior am. I play in the state senior am. Um, I don't, I don't play a lot of tournament golf. I'm getting, I'm getting to the point where I'm phasing competitive golf out in favor of buddy trips to go play great golf courses. I have a really good friend here in town, uh, Mike Arison, who organized a trip last summer. We went out and we played at Crystal Downs and we played at Inverness. Um, I've never played Crystal Downs. I played, uh, I played all of the top 20 old, uh, classic courses in the country, except for Fisher Island. So I'll, I'm going to try to do a, a, a trip with, I got a good buddy that, that's got an in there. I would like to do a trip there uh, sometime next summer, or at least in the near future. 
Um, but you know, I'll continue to try to play in the senior am um for a couple more years anyway. I'm almost 70, so I'm running out of time. Those 55-year-old <laughs> limberbacks are uh are beating me up pretty good. But I'm I mean, I made match play the the previous three years, I think, before this year. So I can still I'm 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 getting Mike, I'm getting so short I can hear my ball land. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when I'm playing with other senior golfers that are out driving me by 30 yards, it's, uh, you know, experience can only make up for so many yards. And uh, it's, it's getting tougher and tougher. But I still Buddy, love to compete and I still love to play. Well, I hope you keep competing. But I, I never thought I'd hear you call a 55-year-old a limberback. <laughs> right, right. I didn't either. I didn't either. I'm just I'm lucky to have lived long enough to be able to do that, right? Absolutely. Well, listen, buddy, thank you so much for spending an hour with me today. It's been great. I learned a lot about you, which was great. And I think a younger generation of coaches and or junior golfers, college golfers that listen to this podcast will uh, enjoy finding out that, uh, you know, not all the coaches are uh, Ryan Hibble and Alan Bratton right now. Some of them did a pretty good job before those guys, right? Exactly. Absolutely. Okay. That was well, thanks very, again. Uh, very enjoyable. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, you it. bet. Thank you so much, buddy. We'll see you. Bye-bye.